Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the podcast with me, Steve Richards. Thank you for tuning in wherever you are in the UK and indeed from around the rest of the world. And even as Christmas looms, we've still got a lot to cram in in our time together. There will be some great questions on all kinds of themes coming up. And if it's okay with all of you, I'm going to reflect on one article I read hidden away in the business news section of, um, it was the Daily Telegraph, I think, a couple of days ago. One which has, I think, wider ramifications, one which inadvertently shines light on the mess we're in in the UK, this country where nothing bloody works, you know, one of the kind of themes of 2023 and one of the themes of the podcast as we've tried to make sense of why things don't work and what can be done about it. Before all of that, just very quickly, thank you all of you who came to the King's Place Christmas special. We had some fun and shed light on a whole year and looked ahead to 2024. Thanks if you joined the stream as well. Uh, And more to come next year, not just in London, but in other venues. Also, thank you those who asked for labels for uh, the book, my book, Turning Points, uh, for Christmas presents for friends and family. Thank you also for the lovely comments many of you made as well as you uh, sent the emails in. Now, hopefully, all those labels have been sent. So if you haven't got one, please let me know by kind of Wednesday or something like that, and I'll send another one. There was a huge story in the Sunday Times at the weekend about the chaos of Royal Mail and the sort of uh, delay in sending out letters and cards and things. But hopefully you've got them. They've all been sent first class, cost me a fortune, don't worry about it. But thank you for buying the book. And of course, I think it's too late now to do any more of those before Christmas, but you can still buy the book as a great present. Uh, Turning Points, a book that tries to make sense of it all from a context of 1945 onwards. And also, those of you who subscribe to Patreon, thank you for doing so. It makes all of this uh, possible, uh, working with the great Podmasters and their brilliant production team. And yeah, you will be getting the bonus podcast on political rivals in the coming days. And this one, we're going relatively modern, uh, looking at David and Ed Miliband, a rivalry of dark intensity, uh, which sheds much light on the new Labour era at a time when, in many ways, Keir Starmer seeks to recreate elements anyway of that new Labour approach to winning an election and therefore uh, its approach to government because the way you win partly, partly 
defines the way you then have to govern. So, uh, yeah, if you're not a Patreon member, do join, make it a present to yourself or a present to somebody else. And uh, we delve deep throughout the year with bonus podcasts and much more live events and so on. So there we are. That's it for notices. Uh, oh, yeah, just one other. Uh, this will be the last, in inverted commas, normal podcast for a couple of weeks, but there will be specials going out over the Christmas period. So please do subscribe. If you don't subscribe, uh, you might miss it. You know, you might be sort of uh, playing games or running even further than normal in your spare time or getting even more drunk than normal. Uh, if you subscribe, it just arrives automatically on wherever you get the podcasts. And when you're with family and friends, tell them to subscribe as well. So there's going to be a couple of special podcasts coming up in the Christmas period. Now, over to uh, my reflection for today's podcast. And yeah, I'm going to do it via this article I read in The Telegraph on Friday. I read The Telegraph, so you don't have to. Um, and it's about, uh, it's just, it was about halfway through their business section. And the headline, and I'm going to sort of read a bit and then explain why I think it is so interesting and significant and with wider implications than the immediate narrow story. So the headline is Harper Cancels Great British Railway Ticket App. So that's the headline. And we go to the story. Mark Harper, the Transport Secretary, has scrapped plans for a government-backed ticketing app that promised rail passengers an easier way to receive funds. The proposal for a new Great British Railways website and smartphone app has been shelved just two years after it was introduced by Grant Shapps, Mr Harper's predecessor. At the time, Mr. Shapps vowed to provide a taxpayer-backed ticketing sales service that would compete with private companies such as Trainline. He said that the Great British Railways website would sell tickets and provide a single compensation system to make it easier for customers to access information and apply for refunds. There we are. Quite a good idea, I think you would agree. Um, an app, more straightforward, more straightforward for booking tickets and for claiming refunds, scrapped. Scrapped by a new transport secretary, Mark Harper, uh, who replaced the old transport secretary, Grant Shapps, Grant Shapps who replaced another transport secretary, and so on. So in the introduction there, you have... A familiar sequence. Far too many cabinet ministers are responsible for a single policy area transport. That's one problem. A bit of good news where a government intervenes on behalf of passengers in what is supposedly a privately run sector. Uh, and that immediately or very soon after it is hailed as a passenger-friendly intervention, dumped. Um, and so that's the kind of opening of the paragraphs. Then, on he went. Mr Harper has ditched the plan as he prioritises collaboration with the private sector. 
The minister said earlier this year, operating the railways is currently financially unsustainable and it isn't fair to continue asking taxpayers to foot the bill. He said he wanted Great British Railways to be an arm's length body with less political involvement. The role of ministers, Mr Harper said, is to provide strategic direction and be accountable to Parliament. It's not the role to pore over operational decisions. The proposed shake-up, which vowed to simplify the current mass of confusing tickets, in inverted commas, prompted at the time a 34% fall in train line share price at the time. So let's just explore this for a minute or two. So here we had uh, the government was going to set up, has uh, half-heartedly set up a state-owned company, uh, Great British Railways. Um, the idea was, it was a messy idea, but better than the current situation, that Great British Railways would have a sort of overriding responsibility. The train companies would remain in private hands, except for those that have gone bust, which of course are now state-owned. It would have been a messy hybrid, but less chaotic than the current situation. Sunak hates it uh, on uh, many grounds, and that tells us a lot, I think, about the reason in the end why he's in... This is me talking, by the way. I'm not still reading this Telegraph piece. I'm going to go back to it again. Um, it's, it would have been a very long piece. Sunak hated the idea of Great British Railways and has not given it any legislative space. He's a very right-wing figure, Rishi Sunak, and he cannot stomach the idea of this government setting up further state-owned uh, operations. And the last thing he wants is for the activities of the private sector to be in any way disrupted by a state-owned initiative on behalf of the passengers. So uh, Mark Harper, who follows instructions from number 10, has uh, done two things. Uh, there is no legislative space for Great British Railways. It won't be formally legalised in this parliament before the general election. Sunak's not interested. Uh, he doesn't like trains, as we all know. His kind of favourite form of transport, and I'm not saying this as to mock him, I think it's true, is the private helicopter. Um, he uh, is wealthy enough to fly around when he's a private citizen. And as Prime Minister, we know his transport of choice is a private helicopter, uh, even when he's visiting parts of Britain. He regards trains as a burden on the Treasury and the taxpayer. And he is no fan of this Great British Railways, which is in the mad situation of being in a sort of embryonic form but with no legislative framework to back it up. You know, it's, it's a bit like the high-speed railway system, which is now uh, going to run from an obscure bit of London to Birmingham, if we're lucky. Uh, this great British railways, you know, has been given a location in Derby. People apparently, I think, now work for it, but they have not been underpinned in any legislative form, the usual kind of mess. So there was Sunak intervening. Uh, something good was going to happen to passengers. The chaos of train fares were going to be partially addressed by a more straightforward app. And the 
nightmare of claiming compensation and the bureaucracy of that was going to be simplified. Well, this was now scrapped. Then there's that interesting paragraph quoting Harper saying, Great British Railways was going to be an arm's length body with less political involvement. The role of ministers is to provide strategic direction and be accountable to Parliament. Well, let's analyse what that means. What does arm's length body mean? And the answer is Harper hasn't a clue. It's just a very simple way of reassuring the ideological right that this is not going to be a kind of active state-owned uh, industry, far from it. It's going to be at arm's length. But it's not really going to be at arm's length if uh, ministers are accountable to Parliament for what happens in our useless railways. And ministers will be not only accountable to Parliament, but to the taxpayer. Because, as we know, they provide a subsidy to the uh, railways, which partly subsidises passengers, but basically a lot of the money is spent financing the chaotic, fragmented structure involving so many agencies. And although in the quote Harper is saying the burden on taxpayers has to go down, if that happens, fares already some of the most expensive in the world are going to go up even more. And that will make the railways less attractive to people who will be tempted increasingly to use their cars. So this is the kind of confused chaos hidden in a simple story about the ending of a passenger-friendly initiative. Then it goes on to say, Trainline also sought assurances from Whitehall that the service wouldn't undercut its commission payments from train operators. Under the current system, passengers can buy rail tickets from companies online and at railway stations, as well as through national rail inquiries. Trainline announced the government's policy reversal about the app in an update to investors yesterday. Trainline notes that the UK Government Department for Transport has announced its withdrawn proposals to create a new Great British Railways ticket retailing website and app. The news prompted a 2.9% jump in its share price. Um, so this is the other dimension. Great news for those who have shares in Trainline that something aimed at helping passengers has been dropped. And in a way, in this short story, I say it wasn't even leading the business section of the Telegraph, it hasn't been reported very widely. We have all that's wrong with the delivery of public services at the moment. Confusion about the government's role in delivering a public service. It will be at arm's length, they claim. But we know they're not really at arm's length because if anything goes wrong, they're accountable. And incidentally, in the recent kind of wage negotiations, the government played a pivotal role, even though the unions were negotiating with the train companies and network rail and all the thousand bits that supposedly comprise the railway network in Britain. 
So the government is claiming to be at arm's length, but never really will be or can be because it's investing money and is accountable in the end for delivery. As they are in the NHS, they've tried there to be at arm's length. Um, They weren't going to be responsible for delivery in specific hospitals, except, of course, when something goes wrong, when they find they are very much responsible and accountable. So there's that mess there. There is the focus on trying to keep it competitive for the private sector, even if that is to the disadvantage of the service user, in this case, the passenger. So it was great news for Trainline. I don't mind good for Trainline having a bit of good news, but at the expense of the passenger, the shareholders of Trainline, yeah, yeah, few. There was going to be a user-friendly app to get tickets and all the rest of it. It's scrapped. Yeah. Share price goes up in the same way that when the water in uh, private monopolies are lightly regulated, it's terrible for all of us lot who want to enjoy swimming in rivers and the seas. But great news for the shareholders of the private companies. When uh, the energy market is allowing some private companies to make big money. Yeah, great for the shareholders of those companies. Uh, Not good for those users of energy. And in each case, of course, the government feels often it has to intervene, even though it pretends to be and convinces itself it is at arm's length from the uh, private companies. Look at the way the government has intervened in energy markets to subsidise energy bills, Uh, in some cases to save energy companies from going bust, similarly, of course, with the train companies. But it's always a last resort thing for the users of public services to be paramount. And in that short story, you can see why. Um, You have an ideological prime minister uh, who doesn't want to intervene on behalf of the users of a public service. And you have the private companies lobbying for the status quo rather than a situation where passengers might be served better, but at the expense of their own involvement in this chaotic sector. And, you know, for a Labour government coming in next year, as many assume it will, this is going to be an immense challenge. Apart from trains where somewhat half-heartedly they have not ruled out taking the railways back into public ownership, uh, they have been unequivocal. There will be no attempt to take other public services back into public ownership. That um, vision of Thatcher, of a privatised Britain, remains absolutely triumphantly in place, unchallenged by new Labour and to be unchallenged by a Labour government if it's elected in 2024. In which case, how does the user of services become prioritised when the dynamic always tends to go in a different way and users kind of have to navigate through the chaos of a kind of fractured system of uh, private monopoly companies being lightly regulated, endless mediating agencies trying to bind it all together. 
Um, now, Labour will have to look at more robust regulation, and they're committed to that. But how and in what form? And um, when will passengers, uh, energy users, uh, those who want to use the rivers and the seas, etc., uh, etc., et feel that they are being prioritised in a system which has become so chaotic in a way they're the last things on the minds of many of the agencies involved, as highlighted by that little news story in the uh, Daily Telegraph last Friday, business section, followed up in the Times on Saturday, I noticed. Um, but um, there we are. We won't have that app, and good luck booking tickets if you're lucky enough to get a train at all. I'm now bringing up your brilliant questions. So thank you for your questions. They've carried on flying in, um, if that's the word, even though we're moving towards the Christmas period. And if you want to join our never-ending debate, the email address is steverick13 at icloud.com. That's steverick13 at icloud.com. I'm going to go uh, to Richard Robinson, who says, uh, oh, very nice about the podcast. He says, I used to listen on the train to work from Nottingham to Leeds. Quite a long journey to work, uh, Richard. Now we've moved to Newcastle. We've inherited one of those massive American fridge freezers. And my wife delegated me the task of cleaning it earlier on my day off. It took an hour, but that was no bother as I enjoyed your latest episode whilst cleaning away. Well, there are more romantic pursuits, Richard, that go on when people listen to this podcast. But cleaning a massive American fridge freezer is a very productive way of using time whilst listening to the podcast and engaging with the Rock and Roll Politics Cooperative. Um, anyway, Richardson, your point about the Tories cheering on one plane taking off before the next general election, the plane to Rwanda, uh, rings true. I'm dreading this and the lurid headlines to follow. I know Labour is currently 20-odd points ahead in the polls. However, I'm old enough to remember 1992 and the Sheffield rally. That was when Neil Kinnock appeared to be prematurely joyous and euphoric about the prospect of winning in 1992. I do just wonder whether to coin a phrase history might very unhelpfully repeat itself in spite of Keir Starmer's cautiousness. Labour do often possess the ability to snatch defeat from the jaws of victory. Um, well, Richard, I did a podcast, and I think it was uh, put out in, uh, I think it was originally for uh, Patreon, but um, was then put out for everyone in, in, in August of this year, which you maybe listen back to when you're next cleaning the fridge freezer, about why this is nowhere near like 1992. In so many ways, there are not the same parallels. I agree with you, that doesn't mean Labour's unique capacity for losing elections uh, might uh, become uh, an issue in the coming months. But it's not 1992. Uh, Keir Starmer is a relatively new leader of the opposition. Neil Kinnock had been doing it for nine years by 1992. 
1992, they thought there had been nearly a change of government, the voters, with John Major. Rishi Sunak most emphatically hasn't pulled off the same trick and, and many other things as to why this isn't 1992. Um, but, you know, I, uh, you know, for those who are used to Labour losing elections, uh, there's going to be, and of course it, it's at the very top of the Labour Party downwards, a neurotic fear that they can blow it yet again. Thank you very much, Richard. Andrew Wilkie. Oh, oh uh, Andrew, very nice. Your podcast is the highlight of my week and by far and away the best politics podcast out there. Yeah, that's great to hear. Uh, it's a very competitive uh, field, this uh, world of politics podcasts. There's one launched about every hour. But I think our one with the Rock and Roll Politics Cooperative is kind of unique and should transcend all these silly attempts at competition, you know. Uh, we'll stride on. Um Anyway, uh, uh, so this is an interesting one, again, uh, relating to the kind of current situation. I have a question about Sunak's strategy since he became Tory leader in 2022. At the time, I thought that despite the polling, he should call a general election as soon as possible. This is because he assumed the technical leadership of the party, but had barely a mandate from the party membership and no mandate from the public. I think this lack of mandate is the root cause of the predicament he finds himself in today. Yeah, I I agree. I mean, there are many reasons why Sunak is in trouble. I, I kind of mentioned one of them in my reflections on uh, that trains app and what it tells us more widely. You know, I think he's ideologically in the wrong place for the needs of Britain now. And it's important not to forget the ideological element to politics or otherwise we're just in a sort of and a kind of technocratic debate about competence and, and, and kind of democratic values almost cease to be in such a debate. So I do think there's an ideological thing, but you're right, there's an authority question arising from the fact that he didn't even win a leadership contest amongst party members, let alone holding a general election. The dilemma, Andrew, is that uh, general elections are tricky for prime ministers to call when they're behind in the polls. Um, and, you know, he had just seized the crown miraculously because he lost to Liz Truss but still became prime minister in that mad period of a year ago. And if he then called a general election, he might have lost. You know, he might have just handed the crown over to Keir Starmer immediately. So you can see why he didn't. But I think you're right that in a way he needed to do something like that um, in order to have authority. But of course, there's no authority if you lose an election. And the Tories were in deep trouble when he took over following the Liz Truss experiment. Shall we call it that, to be polite, as it's Christmas? Um, anyway, thank you very much. Over to our French correspondent, Dominique Jewell. Uh, during a discussion yesterday evening on the topic of cultural difference, our French neighbour, who's a doctor, told us that part of their training involves raising the awareness of GPs in relation to the treatment of patients of different nationalities. When confronted with a British patient, the advice is to expect the worst and to err on the side of caution when deciding on which tests to authorise. This, she explained, is based on the knowledge that access to medical services is so poor in Britain. 
there's an elevated risk of the patient having a serious undiagnosed illness. So much for the NHS being the envy of the world, as expressed by certain UK politicians and media outlets. Yeah, well, again, that's interesting. You know, I say Britain is a is instinctively inward looking and is very parochial at the moment in many ways. And um, it's, yeah, quite depressing to think of how Britain is perceived in other countries, you know, this uh, uh, with governments willing to break international law, you know, with this whole Rwanda story now following Brexit. And uh, the fact that, you know, if we need a French doctor, they're going to be worried we're seriously ill because of the bloody awful health provision at the moment so there we are there's a lot lot to fix um we could be on the edge of a year where a government changes which doesn't happen that often in uk politics um but what challenges for that incoming government Robert Newton in Harrogate uh, says, you're all being so nice about the podcast, which is great. It makes me feel good over Christmas. Uh, He says he hasn't missed an episode since I discovered you over a year ago. I usually listen whilst doing my five-mile-a-day walk. That's really inspiring, Robert, five miles a day. I was running until I got a kind of chest thing. Have you all had this chest thing? Probably hearing the voice, it's still there a bit. Um, but I'm going to start running again, but five miles a day, that's really cool. Um, and you live in Harrogate, so you've probably got a beautiful countryside where you do the walk and listen to rock and roll politics. Robert worries about, I think this is a way of saying we need electoral reform, Robert, which is a view of many in the cooperative, I know. Um, But he gives lots of examples of where the House of Commons really is a platform which is almost impossible to bring about change when a government's got a big majority. He mentions, for example, Yvette Cooper's excellent speeches on Rwanda and then nothing changes. And he says, a parliament with a large single-party majority, as we have at the moment, simply ploughs on regardless. I find it difficult to see how I'm witnessing democracy in action. Parliament presents itself as the foundation stone on which our democracy is built, where issues and policies are argued over and consensus sought, but it's really nothing of the sort. And this is not about MPs being useless. Many, I'm sure, have good intentions, but there simply isn't the infrastructure in which they can do any good. And he gives lots of examples, um, including uh, writing to MPs and getting a sort of formulaic uh, response. Yeah, I say, I think, Robert, what you're saying is you need a voting system which brings about a different kind of House of Commons, because there's no doubt at all when, for example, there's a hung parliament in the latter Theresa May premiership, for example, Oppositions can make one hell of a difference. And then there are the internal opposition factions within a governing party, which have real power. And of course, over Brexit, those internal opposition factions um, had real leverage. I mean, they have less now, actually, because Sunak does have a much bigger majority. Theresa May had no majority during the Brexit dramas. But we'll come on to electoral reform again, no doubt. Um, I don't think it's going to be remotely on the agenda of the 
uh, next Labour government, unless actually there is a hung parliament, and maybe then it will, but perhaps not even then. But thank you, Robert, and for the nice things you say about the podcast. Enjoy your five-mile walks. I hope we get those crisp, sunny winter days for our long walks over the festive period, where the cooperative must continue to try to make sense of it all whilst enjoying ourselves big time. Okay, uh, Joel Rawlings writes, uh, as ever, thank you for helping a novice in politics make some sense of what's going on. I'm sure you're not a novice, Joel. Uh, your, your questions are great, and this is a really great one. I'd like to know how important you think it is for ministers in government to have spent time as an opposition MP. Having had time to see where a government is going wrong from the opposition benches, is a new party in charge better placed than one that is re-elected? I think that's a really good point. I think to be leader of the opposition is better preparation for being a prime minister than having been a cabinet minister who becomes a prime minister. I think it prepares cabinet ministers for government much more thoroughly if you have shadowed ministers in opposition uh, because you become an expert in the policy by the time you then get into a, a cabinet department. Whereas if you're a long-serving government, one cabinet minister gets moved to another department without knowing anything about that department. So no one wants to be in opposition uh, and it's becoming a theme of previous Tory leaders about how horrendous opposition it's and that this lot don't know what it's like. But as a preparation for government, if you're able to then win an election, it's the best. Uh, you become more expert in the art of politics and the policy detail of your relevant uh, department. Uh, thank you for that, uh, Joel. Anthony Wilson has a good idea for the next series of bonus podcasts in Patreon. I'm going to follow it up. At the moment, the series is, um, the idea was uh, given by another listener, uh, Stuart Grant, one of our barometer listeners, voted Tory last time, might not next time, but hasn't got yet to voting Labour. It was Stuart who suggested rivalries in politics. So we've done Gladstone and Disraeli and and, and others. And I say we're going to do the Miliband brothers for your bonus in this, this December. Anthony suggests, how about a series on ex-prime ministers? Uh, they seem to fall into two distinct categories, the ugly, bad and the good. Uh, in the former group, one thinks of Margaret Thatcher, who was a terrible scourge to John Major, and in the latter group, John Major himself. Um, yeah, that's a really good theme. What do prime ministers do when they retire? And do they behave well uh, to their successors? Um, yeah, really interesting and quite unexplored terrain to some extent. I'm going to do it, Anthony. So all of you, subscribe to Patreon for that uh, series to come quite soon. I had a lovely letter from uh, Chris Young about uh, the podcast. And he, within it, he raised an interesting point about, you see, we have a party-based system, not a presidential system. And yet, in a way, prime ministers have the responsibility of a president, um, but without the formal structures to support that. And Chris makes a really interesting point about how can one person effectively deal with, for example, supervising around 26 cabinet ministers reporting directly to them. 
in addition to those persons, senior civil servants, senior political advisors, also, uh, Chris, the media you've got to deal with around the clock these days. Uh, he points out Rab Butler was said to have played a key role beyond his official position in assisting Churchill in his 1951 government. Is it not time that a number of Butler-type characters should be established in the structure of government, thus creating not only a token deputy prime minister, but appointing a number of assistant prime ministers? Um, yeah, that's a, a, a good thought. And um, sometimes they emerge and are of genuine practical use. Uh, Willie Whitelaw under Thatcher... Uh, he chaired a lot of the cabinet committees, even though Thatcher was a dominant prime minister. Uh, she gave quite a lot of space to Willie Whitelaw from a different wing of the party. This was an era where prime ministers had enough self-confidence to give space to people from other parts of their political party. And who else? In, in, a, in a, it kind of Blair and John Prescott, Prescott served a slightly different purpose, actually. Um, to say Willie Whitelaw and Rab Butler. I thought it was interesting when Rishi Sunak brought David Cameron back, uh, who will be, in effect, a kind of deputy, taking up the load on foreign policy, which is a big load for a prime minister, uh, and also kind of guiding Sunak through the torrent of a pre-election period. But I think you're right. There needs to be a number of assistant prime ministers. And yet the pattern tends to be this single under pressure figure becoming more of a micromanager than ever um, obviously not with Johnson who had no mastery of the detail of anything and yet actually did want to take all the decisions without knowing the detail um, but if you look at Gordon Brown Theresa May uh, Rishi Sunak they, they, they micromanage they work from five in the morning till ten at night and the pressure is impossible and yet, as I say, we're not a presidential system. Well, there's another theme for us to reflect on next year. I, I sometimes wonder whether we should become a presidential system. Because culturally, that's where we're at, isn't it? Uh, the focus on the leaders. You, you look into January, uh, where the focus on the election will be Sunak versus Starmer. And yet we're a party-based system. Um, we elect when we go to the polls our local candidate for a party and the leader of that party becomes prime minister but in effect they become a kind of president don't they um, well look uh, I think this will be the last time we're gathering all together before Christmas day um, so just have a fantastic time all of you in the cooperative and um, say so, uh, there's so much going on we must take this pause to step back and reflect so we come back renewed to make sense of it all uh, in uh, January. Um, but in the meantime, there are going to be some specials uh, coming your way. So please, as I said at the beginning, do subscribe. And when you're at your family gatherings and friends gatherings, tell them all to subscribe. Join this cooperative in election year to make sense of it all. And if any of you got a bit of time over the holiday to leave reviews, that would be hugely appreciated. But only if you give it five stars. Forget about any of the other stuff. You know, only if you really like it. Uh, anyway, I just want to say thank you, all of you who have been brilliant in uh, engaging with all the thorny themes that we have explored 
recently and um, there is so much more to come so keep well have a brilliant time see you all very soon take care bye <laughs>